This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So how do you feel when you get a gift? You get a gift, especially a gift that you didn't expect. It could be something small, maybe it was a small gift card, maybe it was something intangible, it was like a compliment, it was like a word of encouragement. How do you feel? What does that pull out of you? How does that change you? Let's say, for instance, it's not just a little gift, but let's say it's a, just an incredibly, massively, ridiculously immense gift. So I'm going to use an analogy that would, I know would never happen, but let's just say you are dying, you need a heart transplant, and a rich relative that you've ignored and scorned for years shows up and says, I'll give you my heart. And you go, well, you'll die. I know, but here's my heart. Why don't you take my heart? What does that do to you? How do we repay a gift like that? So at the heart of the gospel is a gift, a free gift, and God as a giver. And every gift, whether it's small or whether it's huge, elicits something out of us. On one level, we just might say, ah, that's so nice. Thank you. I feel noticed. I feel seen. I feel like you like me. But the costlier the gift, the deeper the response. Gifts elicit something out of us, gratitude. And they bind us to the giver. Again, if it's a small gift in a very small way, if it's a huge gift, it binds us to the giver. It changes the relationship with the giver. It makes us more in love more appreciative, more wanting to please the giver. That's at the heart of the gospel. I think one of the most fundamental ways that people can go wrong in their relationship with God is they see God primarily as a taker rather than primarily as a giver. And in the Bible, even when God's taking, it seems like he's taking, he's really giving. As C.S. Lewis says, he takes with his left hand and then he gives something even better with his right hand. So even God's taking is giving. So at the heart of the gospel, there is this idea of the gift. So I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, and we're going to start with the, the passage that was read in, in chapter 3, verse 21. I believe it's on page 940 or thereabouts. And um, let me just jump into verse 24, where it says that you are justified by his grace, God's grace, as a gift. And then in chapters 5 and 6, Sixth time, Paul is going to use the phrase free gift. It's not only a gift, but it's a free gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't buy it. Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So it's by the grace of God the Father. It's in Jesus Christ, and whom God the Father put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So pay attention to those prepositions because they're really, really important. So I want to look at one aspect, or, or maybe, maybe it's even one controlling image, or it's one aspect of that free gift, and it's the theological word justification. What does that mean? What is that? What kind of gift is that? So I want to look at it in three ways. I want to look at the need for the gift, the gift itself, and then our response to the gift. What does it elicit out of us? So the need for the gift. So last August, I was at the Aurora Post Office. I backed up my car, and I heard this scrunching and screeching and popping, and I just, like, ran into this concrete barrier. 
And I get out, and I look at the car, I shut the door, I look at the car door, and then there's this other guy looking about 20 feet away, and he's like staring at me, and he's staring at the car door, and I go, you know, it's not that bad. And the guy goes, no, dude, it's really bad. And I'm like, well, thanks, dude. Like, I've known you for a full 10 seconds, and I already resent you, you know? It's like, do you really need to say that? So I look at the door today, it's pretty bad. It's really bad. So here we have Romans chapter 1 through 3. Basically, the living God is saying, okay, the wreckage of humanity, the wreckage and the ruin and the smashing up of humanity, it's really bad. It's really bad. So start with me uh, back up now to chapter 1, verse 18. So this is a whole section where Paul begins, and he's, he's like a prosecuting attorney. So let's hear it for the attorneys here today. I know there's at least two here today. We don't often you know, like give a shout-out to attorneys, but let's hear it for our lawyers. So this is like Paul is like a, a prosecuting attorney, and he's like, let me list the charges. Okay, here's where it starts. For the wrath of God, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What does the wrath of God mean? A lot of people think it's like God is just very easily ticked off, and he likes to zap people for just minor offenses. Actually, the wrath of God is the flip side to God's love. Because God loves so much the world that he's created, when he sees evil, when he sees human brokenness, when he sees violence, when he sees his creation being smashed and ruined, he responds with a combination of anger and heartbreak. And oftentimes you will see in the Old Testament, you will see the wrath of God, there's anger and there's heartbreak. So if, for instance, in the flood in Genesis 6, where it talks about how corrupt the world is, it says it grieved God in his heart. It grieved him. Or you see Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem in the Gospels, and he sees these people, people that have turned away from him, that had the inside track, that had the opportunity, and they've turned away. And what does he do? He looks over the city, and he weeps. He bursts into tears. So there is anger, and there is grief at the same time. And why is that? Well, look at the rest of verse 18. The unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, I would like to think of myself like, I want to know the truth. I want to know the truth, you know, like the, the movie, You Can't Handle the Truth. Well, I can't. We can't. But what Paul says here that every human being takes the truth, there it is. It's right there. It's right in front of you. And what we do is we suppress it. We push it down. It's like, no, I, don't, I really don't want to see that. We are in deep denial. Every human being is in denial about our condition. So I'd like to say I'm a God seeker, I'm a truth seeker, but apart from God's intervention, I'm not. I'm a God avoider and I'm a truth denier. That's my nature. I'm gonna hit a few highlights of the next couple chapters, or maybe we should call them lowlights. So, verse 21. It says, for though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's a lot riding on just not thanking God, right? Like what is so bad about 
just not thanking God. Well, Paul is talking about a whole mindset, not just like, oh, I forgot to thank God for a blessing today. No, it's a, it's a whole mindset. It's a lifestyle of complete and utter ingratitude, a hardened ingratitude, a refusal to be grateful. What is so bad about that? Well, think of it this way. Plagiarism is really bad, right? Plagiarism can um, get pastors fired, like if I preach somebody else's sermon. I know pastors that have been fired for that. I know um, authors who have been sidelined, musicians or inventors who have been sued. Plagiarism is bad because you take something that doesn't belong to you and you act like it's yours. You pretend that it's yours and you project to everybody you know, this is mine, I did this, I invented this, I wrote this sermon, I wrote this book, I wrote this passage. And it's sometimes illegal, but it's sleazy. It's really sleazy. We don't like people that do that. Well, here's what Paul is saying that the human race is involved in a colossal episode of plagiarism. We're taking what is not really ours and we're acting like it's ours. What am I talking about? I'm talking about life, your life. I'm talking about living in this finely tuned, intricately tuned universe and earth and planet that we live on. It's a gift. I'm talking about your life, the fact that you were once a fertilized egg with your, it became your unique DNA that became you. That's a gift. You had nothing to do with that. I'm talking about the fact that you just took a breath and your heart was just beating and you're alive. I'm talking about things like your sexuality, your, your maleness or your femaleness and what you do that, they are gifts from God. So I could go on, but what Paul is saying is that your life is a gift. It's on loan. And you will give account for that gift. And most of us, apart from divine intervention, can easily live lives of just complete and consistent ingratitude and obliviousness. So in chapter 1, Paul goes on and he, he gives a list at the end of, of 21 specific ways that the human being can go wrong and, and, and hurt, ignore God or hurt other people. And I won't read them all, but let me just give you some highlights. So one of the words on that list in verses 29 and 30, one of them is, is gossips. At the end of verse 29, there are gossips. It literally means a whisperer, a whisperer, somebody that whispers poison into people's ears. Um, another one in verse 30 is the word insolent. That was a, a specific word that meant a combination of cruelty and pride. It's taking joy in the suffering of others. And you're going, oh, I've never done that. Oh, yeah, really? You've never taken joy when somebody you don't like gets knocked down. Like, look, we all do that. Another word is the word heartless. It was used for people, for mothers who abandon their children, their fathers who abandon their children, or children who neglect their parents, or friends who stab friends in their back. Last word on the list is ruthless. It means without pity. It's a combination of cruelty and violence against people. As my friend Danny Carroll likes to say, the world we live in is not just broken, it's violent. And often against the weakest. The weakest, the unborn, the poor, people without resources. 
That's what Paul is talking about. That's, and we may not, again, not every human being does all these things all at the same time, but we're all capable of these things, and we all live in a system, and we participate sometimes unconsciously in this fallen human nature. So Paul gets to the end of chapter 1, and he's used a lot of words. He's, a lot of times he's used they, them, they do this, these people do that, those people do this. And so by this point, his audience would have been thinking, yeah, yeah, those people do that. Yeah, they do that. They are bad people. They're terrible people. Those people are not okay. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he does this little flip, this little jujitsu move where he says, therefore, you have no excuse. Notice that word, you, not they, but you. You have no excuse, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Maybe not the same things in the same order or the same way, but you're also fallen and flawed and smashed. And you also are part of this system of original sin. Hypocrisy is not just, Christians aren't the only people that commit hypocrisy. It's a human thing. Politicians do it. Business people do it. People that have their ideals. They say they're going to live this way, but they don't live that way. We all can be guilty of it. So, jump ahead to chapter 3. We'll get into our passage. So in verse 23, Paul's sort of like closing argument, closing sentence. Verse 23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Mic drop, boom. All of us. Every single one of us. And so he says in verse 19, every mouth may be stopped. I was reading an article in the New York Times about a, a crisis in our country, a, a spike, a dramatic spike in hospitalizations for children who are suicidal before COVID. This was before COVID happened. 163% increase over 11 years. And one of the doctors said, we don't have a magic formula to figure out how to dial this back and make things better. And I thought, that's a definition of original sin. We don't have a magical formula to figure it out, how to dial it back and make things better. So that's the need. Now the gift itself. Look with me at verse 21. But now... Two of the most important words in the whole Bible, but now. But no matter what happened in the past, something new can happen now. Now. Not, in the few, not just in the past, so you missed it, but now. Um, at 11.05, January 11th, 2023, now. But now, something has happened. God has done something. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. I wish I had time to unpack all that, but I just I want to just say the righteousness of God, what is that? Is that? It means partially that God's righteous. He's good. He's right. He's not evil. In him is light, and there is no darkness at all. But it also means, it also in the Old Testament, the righteousness of God is the, the power of God, the activity of God. When God acts to deliver his people and to save his people. That has been manifested. It has been revealed. God is showing that. 
And he's, it's, it involves all of his ruined and broken creation, but it also involves you. So it's not an either or. Like it's all like big picture, cosmic, or it's all just little picture you. It's both. It runs through you. And then verse 24, we get to the, the heart of the gift, are justified, but you, you all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. A lot in there. The word propitiation, what does that mean? That means to avert the wrath. So this heartbreak and this anger of God over human sin, Jesus was put forward as someone that took that, propitiated it. Not Jesus, God the Son, against God the Father, but together at the cross. And we were justified. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it's a, it's a legal term where the judge puts his gavel down and the or her gavel down and says, boom, you're guilty of sin, but I'm declaring you not guilty. How does that happen? Well, the gospel is that God is just and the justifier at the same time because of the work of the cross. Again, I wish I had time to unpack that, but the, the result of that is that we are not guilty. So Romans 8, 1, this incredible verse where Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's that preposition, in. You're in Christ Jesus. You're not under sin. You're in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. There's nobody to condemn you. No, you can't condemn yourself. And it's not just that God lets you off the hook. It's that you have a new relationship. Something new has started. So God becomes your father. And so in chapter, chapter 8, verse 15, it says, by this, um, verse 15, you have received the spirit of adoption, adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We become in a new family. So forgiveness says, you may go. There's nothing. I, you're free. Charges have been dropped, or the charges have been resolved, or somebody's paid your debt would be more accurate. But justification says, you may come. You may come in that great old hymn that Billy Graham loves so much, just as I am, just as you are. The door is wide open. We move from under sin to in and with and through Jesus. And it's not progressive. Sanctification is progressive. Justification is boom. Gavel, hits, boom. Declared, done. Once and for all. Now, look at chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? Why bring Abraham into this? Like, what's he got to do with this? Well, of course, as the father of the Jewish people, who's also our father in the faith now, what is Paul saying? Well, he's saying that God has always acted this way. God has never been like, well, I had my fling with the Jews. It didn't work out. I'm done with them. Now I'm moving on to the Gentiles. That's not how God has worked. God has always been about justification by faith. So in verse 5, Paul says, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. I love that phrase. In chapter 5, Paul's going to talk about how God justifies the weak 
uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He justifies the ungodly. That is how God has always worked. Abraham was looking towards the cross. We're looking back to the cross. But it's the same process for justification. One famous Christian said, we're not loved because we're so worthy and attractive. We're loved in all of our unattractiveness so that God will make us lovely. See the order of that and how important that is? God really does want to make us lovely. He really does want to transform us. So you're not justified by your track record of good behavior. You're not justified by how well you serve God. You might see somebody that's doing some amazing, really things for God, and you think, well, what's my life? What's my little life? I'm not doing much. But that's, that doesn't justify you. You're not justified by your feelings. You're not justified by your spiritual experiences. You're not justified by the quality of your faith. All of these things are important, and we want to grow in all of these areas. I'll get to that in just a minute. But that's not the basis of your justification. It's by faith. And faith is not another work that you do. Faith is like an empty hand that you stretch out to receive the gift. That's what faith is. So how do we respond to this? I, I said that gifts have this interplay. They, they, they're unconditioned, but they're not unconditional. So Paul, later in this book, he will argue a, a couple times with an imaginary or probably a real objector to the gospel and saying, well, if that's the case, then I can just take the gift and live any way I want. And Paul, if he was a Long Islander, a New Yorker, he would say, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. You know, why, why in the world would you think that? That you just do not understand what a gift is and what it does to you and the costlier the gift, the more it elicits things out of you. And so in chapters 12 through 15, you're going to have this amazing section about just giving yourself to the Lord and worship and, and welcoming people that, that are different than you and not showing any elitism and, and humbly and forgiving those who, who hurt you and all these kind of amazing things that we all want to grow in as Christians. And, and even changes the way, the way we treat Jewish people, you know, for, that, that they are our fathers and mothers of our relationship with Jesus. And like Paul, we want them to know the rest of the story. So we start by receiving the gift. Verse 22, the end of verse 22. For all who believe, for there is no distinction. Verse 25, to be received by faith. Again, that's the empty hand. So we are involved in this, but that's the empty hand to receive and then to let it penetrate us and change us one of my heroes of the Christian faith was a man named Tim Keller, whom, uh, when I was preaching out in Long Island, he was kind of in his heyday out there in Manhattan at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And he liked to say, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared to imagine, and you're more loved than you ever dared to hope. And when I was, um, when I was there on Long Island, um, there was a bunch of people, a lot of people in our church loved Tim Keller as a preacher, way more than they loved me. So, so there was actually a group of people, of core leaders, who for the first service would listen to a Tim Keller sermon on a cassette tape, and then they'd come and they'd hear my sermon. 
And then during bagel time, it was all, oh, Tim Keller said this, and Tim Keller's so amazing, and Tim Keller said that. And I was like getting so jealous and insecure, because I didn't really know who this guy was, you know? And I mean, and I was just like so insecure, and it's like, okay, I just gotta preach better, and then people will like me. They'll like me better, and then they'll like me maybe as much as Tim Keller. Like, maybe I'll just use one of Tim Keller's sermons. Maybe I'll just transcribe it or transcribe portions of it, but that would be plagiarism, and that might get me fired. But I thought about it. I really thought about it. I was really desperate to be like Tim Keller. See, here's the thing. If you're not settled, again, justification, it's not the end, but it is the beginning, and it's like base camp. We keep coming back to it over and over and over again. We never grow out of it. But if we're not settled, we'll always be anxious and self-righteous and self-condemning. And am I good enough? And have I done enough? And am I perfect enough? And, and, and I, I need to defend myself. And I need to justify myself. And I need to compare myself. And how did I do this week? Was I up or down? Or uh, what's, what's the emperor going to say? What's my own heart going to say? Up, down? How'd you do today? How'd you do this week? You see how just paralyzing that is? There is no alternative to the love of God being poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit. There's no other ground for, there's no self-justification program. This is not a do-it-yourself program. But there is something really important at stake here, and I, I, I need to say this. You can walk away, and you can say, I don't want it, I don't need it, I don't need as bad as that guy or that person. I don't want it. I'll do it myself. I refuse to receive it for whatever reason. No. The Bible has a word for that. It's the word hell. That's the word hell. That's what hell is. That's where that decision leads. But we have a better option. So imagine Jesus is here, and he says, I have this gift, justification by faith in me alone. It's not some mechanism. It's not some gear thing. It's, it's me. I'm the gift. What I've done, who I am. And he says, I want you to give it. I want you to have it. And you say, I don't know. Am I good enough? Am I worthy enough? Why do you receive it? You receive it because you're hungry and thirsty. You're weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. You receive it because you're confused and afflicted and conflicted. You receive it because you know your sin and your weakness and your failures. And you receive it because, like Abraham, you believe God justifies the ungodly. Like Abraham, you believe that God gives life to the dead. And you can't bring yourself to life, and you know that he can and he will and you believe that. And how should you come? There's only one way, empty hands, to receive. That's what the Eucharist is all about, where Jesus says, my body given for you, my blood shed for you, for you. I'm holding it out to you. Here it is, best gift ever. Receive it and keep receiving it the rest of your life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.